I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. This is episode 54. I'm here with Andrew Wilson-Smith, who is a sculptor. He's based in Scranton, or near Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, and has prominent commissions around the country, uh, including... Uh, perhaps most famously, um, a, a number of uh, large-scale commissions at Clear Creek Monastery in Oklahoma. Um, I'll let him describe his, his style, but they strike me as uh, extremely interesting, his sculptures, uh, because uh, he is not simply naturalistic. There is a revival of naturalism uh, in sculpture, which tends to focus on uh, the style that emerged during the High Renaissance in the West. And it, it, when I look at your work, Andrew, um, it always seems to me that um, you're doing something slightly different, which is very interesting and embedded really in the Christian tradition from earlier times. So first of all, hello. Nice to, nice hello, to see you. Well, thank you um, so much for your kind introduction. And uh, <laughs> Okay. Why don't you t- tell us a little bit, just cr- tell me how you view the style of your work. And I, I'll ask you a little bit just to tell us your story and how you became a sculptor and uh, how your faith figures in your life as well. Well, that's a lot of questions, but I'll yep. try. Um, so when it comes to style, the way that I tend to think about it is... Um, I'm uncomfortable with the word style, actually, just because it's started to lose its meaning within common parlance, and it can mean so many different things that you lose a sense of clarity. So whenever I find words like that, I try to find a new one and tell people what I mean by the new word. So the word that I use is idiom, and um, you know, an idiomatic way of speaking would be just particular to a place or to a time, for example. And so over my career, I've developed a couple of different idioms within which I'm comfortable working. And I'm always happy to actually develop a new idiom if that sort of need arises. So the two major ones that I've um, sort of developed over the course of my career is a sort of classicizing idiom, one that is rooted in uh, the Greco-Roman and then the various Renaissance and classical revivals throughout European history. And I've also spent some time, especially at Clear Creek, developing a personal Romanesque or medieval idiom. And I sort of see those as two parts of my body of work that I'm happy to, um, you know, continue exploring. And um, I think the word style can start to get us caught up into, you know, particularities that at least I don't find too interesting. So I really do connect uh, the work of an artist with the work of rhetoric, essentially, that were paid speech makers, but in a sort of visual format rather than um, through the use of language. And so a different client, a different situation uh, calls for the the most appropriate idiom, essentially, or style. Um, So for instance, the work that I did at Clear Creek Abbey, the monks were expressing themselves and their tradition and their kind of hopes for their monastery in a very medieval Romanesque language. And it would have been silly in a way to say, well, I'm a classical sculptor and therefore I'll give you these classicized um, sort of sculptures. Uh, Instead, you want to respond to your client, respond to their need, and then find that idiom that's appropriate. Now it's not, 
there are people who do this and respectfully so people who are revivalists of a very particular historical style um and i've never tried to do that in my work um so for example this is a thriving industry in europe because things old artifacts constantly need to be restored and replaced and renewed and so you can have a whole profession as a sculptor of kind of recreating a match for match kind of object to something that existed in the past so there you would be really studying the style in order to restore and to revive uh say a church or a public building and especially of course all the damage that was done during world war ii has been to this day you know recreated um so that's kind of my main thought about that question of style i would say okay um, we'll, we'll use the word idiom from now sure. on um but i i think that that's what i've seen and that's what caught my eye is i i would have said it oh something it's yeah. definitely not just a, a, a simple sort of uh, recreation of a Romanesque uh, style, but it, it's, it, it looks sort of pre-Gothic, but it, it's modern as well. So I think, you're, yeah. I, I think what you have is uh, what an artist ought to be doing, which is um, working within the bounds of some sort of tradition or body of work that Absolutely. goes back in history, that's what tradition is, but nevertheless, you have to express it uh, without departing from the core principles in a way that's particular to you and the the place where it, it's going to be. I, I'm, uh, I would say you've done that actually. I, it, I, I like what you do very much. We'll we'll show people some examples of your work a um, little bit later. We'll go to your website and we'll have a look at some photos. I'm sure people are curious. Um, could you just tell us first a little bit of your your story, sure. um, it, your story in faith and how you got involved in um, sculpting and uh, how how that happened? So what what's your life so far? <laughs> so far. Um, well, I had the good fortune to be raised in a Catholic family, uh, but also a very arts focused family. So my grandmother was a practicing artist her whole career and my father uh, studied art first and then architecture. And so my father went on to um, help lead this current revival in classical architecture and traditional architecture. He, when I was about, uh, we grew up kind of in California first and then Chicago for a little while, but I mostly grew up in South Bend, Indiana, where my father took the leadership position at Notre Dame University's architecture department. Right. Uh, your father is uh, Thomas Gordon Smith. Some people right. will recognize that, that name, um, who's contributed hugely, actually, as you say, to this revival. That's Indeed. Beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point in the late 80s, he sort of took leadership of the architecture department at Notre Dame and began to institute this classical program. And so that was the milieu in which I grew up. You know, we would go on long family vacations to Rome while he was working on various projects. And so from an early age, I had a lot of exposure to the arts and um, to various things, and also a lot of encouragement from my parents to, you know, to study this interest in drawing and painting and sculpture. Um, and so as I continued through, I went to high school actually at uh, St. Gregory's Academy, which is an institution I'm still um, affiliated with as a teacher part-time. And, um, that was a real revelation too, and an augmentation to my education because uh, 
I had a very good exposure to the liberal arts tradition at St. Gregory's just during high school. Um, and also, I think in a way, uh, sort of, I had always been raised Catholic and going to mass and so forth, but I think it was at that point where I saw especially a liturgy and a sort of approach to Catholicism that honestly made sense to me. Uh, I think growing up in sort of very normal Midwestern American Catholic culture, there's just not too much attractive deeply about the faith that's presented to children, at least um, in those kinds of atmospheres. So I think I went to high school having more or less written off Christianity as a sort of valid or interesting thing. Um, and I sort of was exposed and had an opportunity to discover the faith kind of for the first time as a young man there at high school. So that was quite interesting and, you know, continues to form my yeah. life. It, it's worth mentioning St. Gregory's Academy, I, I think, because uh, I'd heard of this. It's a boys' boarding school. Um, That's right. Isn't it? And I had been told about this when I was in England, even before I came uh, to the U.S. Um, and the reason that people mentioned it to me was because of this integration of worship and education. Yes. Which I'm interested in. And doesn't occur very often, I have to say, even at faithfully Catholic educational institutions. So let's forget those who aren't interested, the liberals, those places that have gone Jesuit, if I can use that phrase. Mm -hmm. um, even those that are authentically Catholic and Orthodox don't aim for that integration of the, the life of the students and the studies with the liturgy in the way that St. Gregory's uh, tries. And I understand you, you have uh, morning prayer and evening prayer there. That it's yeah. not, not simply mass. It's, it's That's very true. No, the liturgical life is sort of a mini monastery <coughs> at St. Gregory's. So um, the first thing in the morning is uh, morning prayer. Uh, various prayers, you know, throughout the day, just informally at the beginning and end of class and at meals. Um, as students, we would pray the rosary every evening after sports. We would um, have mass at least three or four times a week. So obviously Sunday masses, but then an old school Friday mass and uh, two or three more times. It, really, we had the option to go every day as students, which many people took advantage of. Um, but also, you're right to say that it's a rare integration because you do have there's at least one or two other schools even here in Pennsylvania that are very focused on um, kind of a traditional approach to liturgy, for example. And I've sort of looked into them and met some of the people. Um, and they have a small teaching staff who essentially administer kind of a homeschooling program at these boarding schools. And so there's a real focus on liturgy and upon tradition with regards to faith, but there's not that same attention paid to the formation of the education of the students. Um, I mean, there can be good homeschooling programs for sure, but uh, mm. to have a whole school set up and then to sort of go through Seton math or something like that seems a little funny to me. Well, um, yes, and, so, and this, this is not to put down those who are trying to, to offer an authentic Catholic education yeah, not at all. in a different way. But we all need to work for each other. Um, there's enough people who are deliberately trying to undermine what Catholic education is. But 
I think that it is unusual at St. Gregory's. When I was at Thomas More College, uh, the, the, the school um, for a year was without a site to go to. And, um, right. and so Thomas More College invited the, the, the upper uh, levels, I think, to come and graduate, have their classes on the campus there. So that yeah. those who were close to graduation could do so. And I found it very interesting to see because they carried on their St. Gregory's life to some extent, even mm -hmm. within the, the Thomas More campus. And I thought it was very interesting. Yes. Well, that's right. There was sort of a change in uh, ownership over the last few years. So now we're an independent school within the Catholic tradition run essentially by a lay staff. And we have um, a chaplain who works for us part time. So it's been a neat transition from when I was first there as a student to the current situation. But, yeah. Well, so that, that's great. So that's the development, you know, in, in a very short version of your, your faith. So seeing this, um, what was going on at St. Gregory's made you aware of something new was happening. What about the, where, where did you learn to sculpt? Where did you learn the craft of your art? Well, uh, I tend to tell people that I went to the School of Hard Knocks, which is about as close as you can get, I think. But um, really starting during high school, I had some opportunities during the summer to apprentice with other sculptors, and that was extremely valuable. Um, so about three different summers in different places kind of going and just kind of working full time for different artists. And that was um, a great experience for me during high school. After high school, I went, um, to the Pennsylvania College of Fine Arts uh, in Philadelphia. And I enrolled there as a full-time student, kind of under the sort of false advertising premise that they were continuing this kind of 19th century format of education, which um, unfortunately that school, which had maintained all through the 60s and 70s, this sort of rigorous 19th century drawing curriculum basically, uh, had kind of given up on that project about 10 years before I got there. Oh. Um, and so it's, you know, a sort of sad situation, but this is what happens in institutions. And um, by the time I was a student there, most of the traditional faculty had kind of gotten fed up and left and started their own programs. So um, I really, the most valuable thing there was spending time in the cast hall, just copying casts of antique sculpture. Mm which was very, um, you know, formative to my abilities to sculpt. And then also uh, working with an artist there in Philadelphia, Anthony Visco, um, who I began working for during my second year in Philadelphia, I pretty much sort of did the minimum college work and spent most of my time with Anthony Visco, and that was very valuable as well. Um, right. This, this is interesting. M most of the art or... I'm trying to think whether is most the right word, but certainly the, the, there are quite a few artists that come to mind who are um, actually working artists and I think are contributing something that could be the basis of a, the re-establishment of the Catholic tradition in art as we go forward. And I think you're one of them. Um, I looked at people like Aidan Hart. There's a painter in England called James Gillick, actually. Um, but what's interesting is that most of those who are working as artists and getting commissions um, describe a similar sort of thing to me, that, that there was nowhere 
just to, to, to sign on the dotted line and get this sort of conveyor belt education. Mm -hmm. So the, the profile tends to be people who they know what they want to do. They will learn a bit here. They will learn a bit there. But it's not um, random. It's all in conformity to a sense of what they, what they want to do. Um, and then That's through that, to survive that kind of art school experience, David, I mean, yeah, was the sort of trick, I call it, that they were playing on high school kids who, you yeah. know, the high school child likes drawing, they like yeah. to do something that looks like something. That's the very basic core of art is this, which is what art is. Imitation is the is the center of art, going right the way back to Aristotle. I, I, I couldn't agree with it. It's funny you say that because I, that's what I often said. It's still, well, there's a real injustice in it yes. all. There's a real uh, conniving behavior going on at these art schools where I think given my experience prior to going to college, you know, I had a lot more um, perspective than your average high school graduate might. And I was much more willing to just completely ignore my teachers than most of my classmates were. <laughs> um, but I really saw some of these kids get manipulated and ruined in these couple of years. You know, they would really get tormented by their teachers and just sort of, um, you know, a good-hearted kind of obedient kid shouldn't go to those places because they'll be kind of ripped apart, I think. And it's not just... Um what's happening in in art schools is that they are presenting a world view and it doesn't just affect your art i mean if you're immersed in this um either you spend your time miserable because you're fighting against it because you you thankfully you did you, you oh well i had a great time because i love conflict <laughs> <laughs> okay but um th that's the, this worldview, which uh, strikes me, I have to say, as sort of a Marxist coming out of the Frankfurt School of Marxism, actually, it's a very particular approach to art. Um, it, it also affects the souls of people. I mean, it, it, it engenders misery and um, a general sense of victimhood, um, unless you're the opp oppressor class, in which case you spend your whole life apologizing for who you are. Right. you've never done for the most part um and it just it, it affects the people right to their hearts i think negatively uh, as you say it is a it is it is a very bad thing it um and it's sad because what people go to art school today is still what they used to go through people like art because they like to draw and paint I mean, that's what's got me into it i would i wanted to be able to see something and draw it um and I had a similar process. I, I, I'm sort of part self-taught, part taught by people I asked to help me. You know, I had a teacher, Aidan Hart, who always says I didn't do enough of what he was he was asking me to do. But um, but nevertheless, um, you you need a, a certain sort of um, obstinate attitude, I think, to get on today. Um, let's hope that we can contribute to making it easier for the next generation. I know, for example, you know, I'm, try I'm trying to create um, an art school where I am at Pontifex, and I know that you, we, we've been talking about this, that you um, offer apprenticeships and you, 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 you're, you want to train people and pass this on to people who you think might succeed in the future through your studio. 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I do run a sort of fairly informal apprenticeship program. Um, and I kind of got started with it. Basically, every time I've given a public lecture at some university or somewhere, there's always one young person in the audience who sort of waits till the end and asks me, well, where I want to do this. Where do I go? Yeah. <laughs> and especially if they're if it's a Catholic context, I um, you know, I'm always at a loss of where to tell them to go because there is no institution that's really geared for the kinds of young people that you and I both were at various points and that these people yes. are. And um, I tell them honestly to, you know, <clears throat> for instance, if you have some situation, if you have generous parents who are willing to kind of fund four years of college, then get them to give you a stipend for four years and just go and work either for free or for next to nothing for working artist, you know? Um, I don't know a lot of artists who can pay big paychecks to people to, to learn, you know, um, on the job. But a lot of artists that are working can use some help and can use some company, quite honestly. It gets yes. kind of awesome if you're working alone. Yeah. And um, so, to my, for my money, if, if I was a young person and had supportive parents, as I did when I was young, uh, thank goodness, you know, the best approach would be, say, to travel around for four years and find four different people that you think have something to offer you and say, look, let's make a situation here. I'll work for you part time and you give me training part time. And I yeah. think that's much more valuable than the formal systems that are in place right now. Um, I, I think so. My friend Jim Gillick, who I mentioned, he started to do something similar in England and Aidan Hart uh, has a similar approach. So he, he has... He started some formal classes as well in conjunction with the university. But so much of this is about um, advice where, where somebody's looking at the work you do and guiding you yeah. on a personal and individual basis. So when I do this, it's a very informal arrangement. I had a student a couple of summers ago who came and I met her at a lecture in New York and she was studying at the um, Florence Academy's painting program there in New Jersey. And she said she had an itch to learn how to carve stone. And so we just made a very simple arrangement where she came and found a place to live near the studio. And um, she worked for herself for four hours a day, kind of going through some stone carving exercises. And then she worked for me for four hours a day. And that was all that happened. You know, no money changed hands. And it was very beneficial for me and for her, I think. So yeah. these are good kinds of things to do. That's, I think it also, it's, um, I'm just speaking for myself here. I'm interested to know whether this is true for you, but I think it helps me uh, as an artist because I've got to be able to articulate, if I'm going to teach, um, then I have to be able to articulate what I'm doing. Yes. It forces me to think deeply about the core principles and I find it beneficial actually to be helping others um, in this as well. I feel I find that it contributes to the, the quality of my own work. Uh, to some the, same, the same. And um, there's a sort of another motivation that is probably not good that happens in sort of teaching situations. You can go to art school and be completely untalented and unable to ever <laughs> go forward. And that you can keep paying tuition year after year after year. Yeah. And, uh, it's not the same in a work environment where if you're just not going to be able to cut it, your, your teacher is just going to say, well, thank you very much, but 
go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, I agree. The market is, uh, I, I'm a great fan of the market in art, actually. <laughs> I think it helps weed out the, or separate the good from the bad. Sure. Um, all right. Now, th this is a podcast and we do have video and audio. So we can't, uh, some people will just be listening to this. But I think what we'll do is we'll just have a look at some of your work. I'm going to post some photos up on the blog post that accompanies the podcast so people can look. But could you just show us now just some of what you do? I know we're going to, we practice this screen share operation before we started recording. Give it a shot here. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so first of all, we're going to your website. Hopefully, Let's see. Are you seeing that now? The image? yes. Okay, I see the Lamentation of Christ, two thousand and eighteen. Uh, that is on your website. What, what's the address of the website where people can go and have a look themselves? You can find it by going to andrewwilsonsmith.com or you can yep. also find it by fourcrowns.org fourcrowns.org andrewwilsonsmith.com .com. Yeah. all right so that looks more in the classical mode to me am i right or i think so yes yeah um and so this this was actually a personal project. I didn't have any client for this. I think years and years ago, I made a sketch for a potential project that never went anywhere. Okay, so for those who are listening, we can't dwell too long because some people are just sure. listening, but we're looking at a, a pieta, is, is it? Is that how you pronounce it? A pieta. Pieta, sure. okay. I, I'm, um, um, and I purposefully changed the title to Lamentation of Christ, and that's the more formal title for this image. Uh, of course, everyone's familiar with Michelangelo's Yes. Uh, the sort of the emotional subject of Mary holding the dead body of Christ. Um, the lamentation actually is a larger, uh, it can contain multiple figures. There are some great medieval paintings of sort of 15 figure lamentation scenes with right. Mary Christ in the center and then um, various figures flanking. But um, this was just the nugget of an idea. If you, the famous, concept that um, Michelangelo's Pietà Mary is sort of disproportionately large compared to the Christ figure and that allows her to hold uh, <laughs> hold Jesus as if he's an infant which is just marvelous it's it's the most amazing sculpture um, but this was just sort of playing around with that idea and rearranging the scale such that Mary would be more appropriately sized and would be sort of overwhelmed by the mass of of a full-grown man, essentially. And I just thought that would be quite clever and uh, sort of trying to arrange two figures in a composition and so forth. And so you can sort of see how that plays out. And um, I had this kicking around in the studio for years, just as a little... So, so for those who can't see it, and we'll, as I say, we won't spend too much time on the paintings because some are in audio. But what we're looking at here is the figure of Christ effectively on the ground with his mother supporting him just by the shoulders so his hips for example and feet are on the ground and his the his head uh, is in her breast and then she's holding him under the shoulders uh, very tenderly uh, there and his head is uh, resting on her shoulder uh, 
just to one side there. Could, could we see some of your Romanesque, if I uh, idiom work, if I use that word? Let's find that here. I'll start with the enunciation capitals. Okay. And so on the portfolio page, if you're just browsing through, uh, you can find that under enunciation capitals. And this was the first project for Clear Creek. It's Our Lady of the Annunciation Abbey at Clear Creek, Oklahoma. Um, and so the abbot wanted to have a prominent work of art to display the scene of the Annunciation. Um, and so we decided, and this was a project of my father's. This was the first project that he and I collaborated on as okay. an architect and artist. And so, um, we have these Romanesque capitals that are facing one another and they're built into the uh, portal. And uh, so just so that some people won't know, because I didn't know that I did before I started to sort of officially look at this. A capital is, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's at the top of a column. It's where the column sort of spreads out to have a wider um, support, uh, base, if you like, to what might be an arch or something like that above exactly. it. So the, the, in order to be load-bearing, the arch has to sit on the column and there needs to be this sort of base that collects the, the, the mass, the weight of the arch, and then channels it into the column, which, so, which is vertical. And so what happens is the column is broad where it directly supports the arch and then it narrows slightly uh, when it goes down to the, the, the actual column itself. Mm. And then the transitionary uh, tapering um, is an opportunity to introduce a carving. That's called a capital. Is, is that fair? That's just... fair. Absolutely. Yes. And so you have, of course, going back to Egyptian times, this tradition of sort of uh, having elaborate sculptural decoration on yes. the yeah, and through the famous Greek orders, and then into Romanesque, you start to develop, especially uh, these sort of historiated capitals, and that's where rather than acanthus leaves or volutes or various ornaments, you actually have um, narrative sculpture often, or decorative sculpture of animals, for instance. Um, so in this case, it's not like a classical capital that might have volutes or leaves, but it's actually a whole history, a sort of story. Yes. Uh -huh. Lots of figures. And it reminds me, I, I don't know if you were looking at these or you had these in mind, of um, the sort of sarcophagi you see, uh, sort of semi-relief sculpting um, from about the 6th century or something like that, where you have figures crammed in, lots of energy, um, <laughs> with large, proportionately large heads, so you get a sense of their mood. Yeah. Um, Lots of intertwining limbs and this sort of thing. Um, so one art historical term for this style would be uh, horror vacui. <laughs> yes, afraid uh, of the vacuum. Of empty spaces, <laughs> the fear of empty spaces. And that's one way to distinguish between a kind of classical aesthetic and a medieval aesthetic would be the medieval doesn't like to leave a lot of empty spaces in his composition. He wants to fill up every spot. Yeah. Um, I think behind you, David, there's a painting of the Annunciation by Fra Angelico. Am I correct? That's right. Yeah. And that was a major influence on this composition as well, because I started in with any project for a religious project or even a secular one in some cases. I always start by exploring the past precedent 
and um, essentially I just collect nowadays with the internet, I just collect all the photos I can find of a theme, whether it's the Annunciation or uh, a few years ago, I did a Christ teaching in the temple. For that one, I probably collected a hundred paintings historically and put them all in one file to just be able to look through them and take notes. And so when I was starting to approach this project, um, we had one problem, which was the scene that the client wanted was the Annunciation. And that is at its core, a figure of an angel and a figure of Mary uh, communicating. Mm. Um, but there are a total of six sides to this series of capitals. And um, you only have the sort of narrow exposure on the, on the front. And so I started looking for all the precedents I can of the historical tradition for the Annunciation. And Fra Angelico really is a perfect um, example because often, and this will be true of other Renaissance artists as well, you'll have the whole history of man's salvation in one painting. Yeah. So if you look at the painting behind you or many other examples, there's probably in the distant background, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden, right. sort of need for the sort of allusion to man's sin, the need for Christ's redemption. Um, there's often also a little sculptural element uh, depicting the prophet Isaiah. And that's because Isaiah has one of his famous verses, um, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child and you shall call him Emmanuel. Yeah. So that prophecy of Isaiah has always been associated with the Annunciation. Um, so that was really the starting point for filling up all of the relief panels that needed to be filled. Right. Um, so if you see, if you're watching, I can kind of go to, let's see, the narrative begins at the back of the Old Testament capital, the capital with the angel, and that has a scene of the uh, creation of Adam and Eve that's kind of on the back side of it. You can't really see in these photos too well. Um, and then on the broad side, you have the angel expelling Adam and Eve from the garden. And, um, you know, they're kind of clutching apples and running away with a snake intertwined between their legs with this sort of angel with a fiery sword sort of directing them outward. Uh, and that leads on the same side to the prophecy of Isaiah, where the angel comes to cleanse the lips of Isaiah, and then he holds out his scroll uh, with, with that passage, Ecce Virgo Concipiat. Um, and so as you turn around that flank, you get to the angel Gabriel. And if you jump from one capital to the next, he sort of communicates with Mary. Um, and oh, yes. Mary is receiving sort of the grace of the of the incarnation of Christ. Right now, if if I was walking through that door, there's a doorway there. It's a portal. Yes. So are they? There's some height above me. Are they? That's right. Yeah. And that's a nice arrangement, as you described so eloquently. The capital tapering downward. It gives you a very good sort of angle to sort yes. of the relief towards the viewer essentially because it's something that isn't often isn't people don't think about um even artists um where is this gonna hang if it's a painting or where is it gonna where is it going to be viewed from and the the angle of vision and that whether people have to look up or look down or it, it, 
affects how you represent things. Um, yes. Very interesting to hear you describe how the natural widening as it goes <laughs> up of the of the capital helps that to be viewed from some distance below, uh, which is where it's what what it has what has to happen. Well, that's very exactly right. And so for architectural sculpture, there's really two ways to do it. You can estimate the angle at which it's going to be seen. The simple way, what I've done here, is simply to tilt the picture plane towards the viewer. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the more sophisticated method that you might do in Greek or in Renaissance-type public sculpture would actually be to stretch the sculpture out, yeah. make it intentionally distorted, and then that distortion is accounted for when the viewer finally sees it. So in simple terms, if, you, if I'm looking up at a vertical wall, the lower parts are closer to me than the upper reaches. And That's so right. to, to create a coherent image, you have to effectively do a little bit of, you have to broaden relatively the, 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 the magnitude of the upper parts relative to the lower parts, so that from where you're looking at it, it looks like a coherent whole that's all in the same proportion. Yeah. And this is why, uh, if you really look closely at Michelangelo's David, for example, it's quite oddly proportioned because it's more or less on ground level where Michelangelo originally tend, uh, intended the sculpture to stand um, hundreds of feet up in the air, actually, on top of a building. And when it was finally finished, uh, the people of Florence refused to put it way up high on a building. They thought it was so good, they wanted to keep it within, within close eyesight. Um, so if it were 150 feet up, you would see it more proportionally, for example. <laughs> I didn't realize it was it was intended to be that high. Yeah, uh, something like that. Maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe 60 right. or 100 feet, but um, quite high, really. And, uh, you yeah. know, you, I think people... Michelangelo's David is a wonderful example because it's not a work of religious art. I think oftentimes people will say, oh, well, it's a biblical theme. It must be religious art. It's a civic monument, you know, uh, essentially in the format of kind of a, um, you know, a, a military mascot, essentially, right? Uh, if you yeah. think about Michelangelo's David, it's there to sort of scare off the, Pisan, the Pisans and uh, whatever other rivals of Florence as a sort of statue to intimidate, um, but not a statue for sort of religious devotion or reverence. Yeah. He was also an architect who designed the ramparts of the city as yeah. well. Um, so that makes sense. I, di I didn't know that. that that's really interesting. Um, okay, let's go now to the, finally, to the subject that we thought we would talk about at the beginning. This has been extremely interesting. I'm glad we spent time on these themes getting up to this. But the, the reason that we even arranged to, to talk originally was that you mentioned, so we were talking about something completely different, and you mentioned something that in your view, um, you said that there is a prejudice in the West, and it seems to be there in education, and even Catholic education, in, in the arts, that favours the written word. Um, I, I feel, especially in academia, this is the case, that, um, that doesn't appreciate 
visual art and music at the same level. Uh, perhaps music slightly higher in the minds of the, 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 the sort of the academic than than what you and I do. I would say, um, but as part of an, the education, and, and it's seen very much as something that's even though people will eulogise about beauty, truth, and goodness in a Catholic liberal arts college, um, that if you ask them about the value of learning to paint, they'd, they'd probably still treat it as recreation, something that's nice to do. It's not actually using your mind, so that they would say, um, so therefore it doesn't have the same value. Um, so well, I'll, I'll let you, rather than pushing my views on you, that's, that's what I was, that's mm. immediately what I was thinking about, because I agree with you. Um, well, very complicated issue. Yeah. Uh, so let's start throwing all of the uh, Catholic American Catholic liberal arts colleges under the bus. No. <laughs> um, I, I think it's quite fascinating, David. There's a real revival going on in sort of great books education in the United yep. States. I don't know what the climate is in Europe at all with this regard. But in the United States, there are a lot of these um, really strong Catholic colleges that are quite small and have quite strong programs for um, exposing young people to the great tradition of, of Western culture. And it's yeah. really a movement that started in the 1930s with a few different scholars and their sort of bookshelf of books that every person should read in order to live a good life. And this kind of tradition has, has thrived as a subculture within American academic life. And it's certainly not the mainstream, but it's quite healthy in some environments. And so all that is to be lauded, I think, and um, quite important. Okay. I think the point I was maybe making to you, um, and also, by the way, you know, any person who wants to pursue the fine arts, I think, should really have a very strong grounding in the liberal arts in general. I think that you should know some history, you should know some literature, some philosophy. All of these things are constantly informing an artist who's trying to work within a broad tradition. Um, and so that kind of exposure to many disciplines is, is invaluable, I think. Um, there is an issue, it's a very broad issue, I think, in Western Catholicism that's not nearly contemporary. Um, it's just a, a sort of prejudice that's almost ingrained in the whole history of the Western church. And so when we think about the fine arts and Roman Catholicism, um, many people today will lament, oh, you know, art is so bad since Vatican II. It's all this nonsense and all this sort of wishy-washy modernist stuff. And my only point is it's been bad for 200 years, not for, not for 60. Yeah. Um, and so my, my kind of long view of the situation would be that there's always been a prejudice in the West for the written word as the sort of primary object of value when discussing theology or philosophy or anything else. And I don't think that's quite in line with, uh, with the best possible world. So if you go back even to a church father like St. Gregory the Great, he has various kind of uh, comments where he says things like, it's very important that we decorate the walls of our churches with paintings of, of the Bible. 
of the stories from the Bible. And that's because most people can't read the Bible, therefore they need to read it in pictures rather than in books. And uh, this is a time where a Bible costs the equivalent today of a house. You know, you can't, it has to be written down by hand and it's just a limited art to read and to deal with texts. Um, and so I think this notion of sort of Western sort of sacred art as being illustrative of sacred texts um, is very ingrained. It goes back very far. And I think the big problem, I mean, art is continuously used within this matrix to educate the illiterate because the people continue to be illiterate for hundreds of years. And all these wonderful things happen in uh, Western art over that time span. Um, and of course you have the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and that leads to a major shift in the purpose of the Catholic Church's use of art. Um, but I think right around the period of the Enlightenment, there's a real shift in attitude and the church abruptly stops uh, being an important patron to the best artists in the world. So the best artists in the world in Europe start being patronized purely by secular forces within society and not by the church. And the church, starting in the that period, becomes very content with sort of second and third rate artists kind of churning out traditionally themed objects of art, sort of devotional statues and devotional paintings, but nothing that's really groundbreaking or really in touch with what the most prominent artists of the time are doing. So I always wonder, where is Whistler's Madonna? You know, where is, uh, who are the great, who's your favorite 19th century painter? Um, why wasn't the church tracking down those, those artists at those times and saying, look, you're the most prominent artist of the day. You need to be. Um, John need Singer Sargent would be my. Yeah. Uh, Wasn't that wonderful? You know, yeah. or Sargent or Whistler kind of, or even who else would be fun? Um, just imagine those things happening and they didn't. Um, so when I look at this question, to me, I mentioned, for example, Houdon. Houdon to me is the great sculptor of his generation. He's the sculptor of the uh, French Enlightenment of the American Revolution. And as a very young man, uh, in his early 20s, he received two prominent commissions from, church, from a church in Rome to sculpt one of St. Bruno and one of St. John the Baptist. And anyone who's familiar with the Atelier tradition has seen Houdin's écorché of St. John the Baptist. It's sort of a hand sticking out like this as if about to bless Christ. Tell us what an écorché is. Uh, écorché would be the French word for without skin. So in the sort of academic tradition, you study anatomy very thoroughly. And so one way to do that is to study the bones and muscles without the sort of uh, covering of skin that kind of obscures those things. And so these are models that might be sort of 18 inches? Well, in this case, Houdon's was life-size. How was it? Okay. He, felt, he didn't feel confident enough to do this prestigious kind of um, commission. It was his first commission. And so he was so nervous that first he made a full-scale life-size écorché of St. John in the posture that he would be in so that he could be sure that he got every bone and every muscle exactly right. 
And then he saved that. He made a cast of the Ecorche, which has gone on to be extremely famous in this sort of tradition of cast collections. Um, and then he went on and added that little layer of skin over the muscles and produced just an absolutely phenomenal statue of John the Baptist extending his hand out in baptism. Um, but that and the St. Bruno are just absolutely exquisite works of sculpture. Um, and to my mind, they're kind of the last great Catholic works of art, at least in the sculptural tradition. Um, because after that, the church never hired him again. They were now we're talking uh, well, sort of late 18th century? Yes, yeah, sort of American revolutionary period would be the time when Houdon was quite old, yeah. he was sculpting Benjamin Franklin and the like. Because I, I would say in painting T.A. Pelot at the mm -hmm. same period, exactly the same period, the last great. The last great. You know, obviously there are rock artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, who was and, doing um, sacred art, who was Yeah, so, so why is that, David? And my, my best guess, I'm not a scholar of anything in particular. I just sort of think about stuff. <laughs> so if there's someone out there in the sort of, university that wants to either re rebut my argument please send me an email um but my estimation is that the roman clergy the sort of you know bureaucratic wing of the church started to feel that universal literacy was approaching and it really was i mean people were just learning to read in much greater proportion than they ever had before and the attitude in the west was Pictures and sculptures are a poor substitute for reading the Bible. And therefore, now that you can read, you ought to just read the Bible and stop looking at all this sort of uh, <coughs> images. Um, or a missile. Yeah, read the missile. Yeah. Which is, which um, and so it really, you know, and I think as we've discussed the other day, sort of really reading. Everybody can read a menu and read a contract and the basic kind of skill of getting through life you know, reading stuff as you need to. But reading really deeply, reading really intensely, even things like scripture is kind of a minority taste. Um, and a more minority skill set, essentially. I mean, I can't quite read. I'm, I'm functionally literate, but I can read silently about the same pace that I can read out loud. Now that precludes the life of scholarship, essentially. You have to be able to read a book every afternoon if you want to be a proper, you know, doctor of some field or another um you know and it's even that is interesting right because that's a recent human development in 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 ancient times it was remarkable for someone to have the skill of silent reading to be able to read without mouthing the words was a remarkable skill saint augustine writes about this about someone or maybe it's so sorry it's someone writing about saint augustine they say he has this remarkable ability to read yeah, words in his head without ever saying them out loud. It might have been Saint Augustine talking about Ambrose. Actually. Maybe that's it. It's something like that. But I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. You asked me about what the re I, I agree that the, the 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 point is something like the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, this separation between the culture of faith and the wider culture. So yeah. Um, my theory uh, is that um, despite Gregory the Great, that actually even in the West, um, although it was 
use to communicate the truths that still, if you look at the, the, you know, the Van Eyck, the Ghent altarpiece, that is not um, an illustration of, yeah. uh, of the gospel. That is supporting the worship. So it's, and, and it's an alternative presentation. In, in a, it's a presentation of the gospel narrative appropriate to what's going on in the church in a different way and it's communicating things because it can present things um what's the word anachronously with different times at the same point that's one yeah. thing that a, a painting or a sculpture can do you can have a whole narrative presented mm -hmm. in an instant so well, you, that's just what i did in the yeah in the capitals at clear creek where exactly. all the, so what you're presenting there is something that communicates um, truth in a different way in other words it's complementary to it and uh, you mentioned that it's it seems to be different in the east that um that what that this certainly happens in the east still i would say in the eastern church that it is there to engage us in a in a different sort of way yes um, truths which either are presented alternatively to the word but sometimes in such a way that we grasp meanings that words alone can't. And, and the catechism says this, that art through its beauty communicates truths beyond words. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I'm suggesting that uh, there were two streams in the West. There were, it was both and for a yeah. while. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, David, just to maybe correct myself, I completely agree with your statement that it's always been bigger than that. I think my only point is there's also yep. always been a stream of sort of intellectual mindset yes. that says these pictures are nice illustrations for the illiterate and they can be tolerated. <laughs> well, because what happened, I think, was that the liturgy decayed. Mm -hmm. um, it became an introspective uh, process. If people were aware of the words, they were reading their missals. Um, and so the need for art or sculpture to to do that to engage in that other way just wasn't seen anymore yeah. and the nature of worship changed and so all that and as you say when the other reason to have it which is to communicate the truths to, to the illiterate which again i've never been that convinced by anyway because people can talk to each other <laughs> so, <it's not> <laughs> I mean, unless you're deaf, it, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be absolutely. Deaf. It's, it's well, that's exactly it. You you yeah. can have a level of literacy in an oral tradition, yeah, far surpassing American literate literacy. Yeah, if you went to a medieval person and asked them to tell you a story, they could tell you a story for every night for all of winter yes. because they have an oral tradition that they're totally literate in. So what we're talking about is a rich culture that yeah. speaks in symbolism that speaks in words that it's oral it's written um mm. and it's musical it's it's there in the architecture in all ways and then suddenly i think you're right though i think that what's happening because of this shift in in the the, the nature of worship as well that that what then comes to the fore is this sort of internal communication that, that focus well, there are a couple other things that come to mind to my mind as I yeah. think about that period as well. So there's two other major factors that I've identified. One is that you have a divorce of symbolism. So all through medieval yeah. 
Europe, both the state and the church have a shared language of symbol that includes ancient pagan symbolism and also includes biblical and New Testament symbolism. Right. There's a beautiful merger of the two, so that even in icons, you find the same thing. You find river gods prominent in the icon of the baptism of Christ, for example. Um, there's a little pagan god of the River Jordan, you know? And that's perfectly fitting, because it's not to worship the god of the River Jordan. It's to say this river has a spirit. It has an animating force, and we can identify that as this little nymph who lives in the river. Um, and so also the state, as I said with Michelangelo, it seems like it should be a religious subject, but really it's the state taking the symbol of David from the Bible and applying it to its sort of war-making apparatus, right? That's why the David, Michelangelo's David, isn't circumcised. Have you ever thought about no, that? I didn't, know, I didn't know that at all. No. Yeah, if you look closely, there's, there's no circumcision having happened there. And that's because no self-respecting Italian military man would ever contemplate such a thing as circumcision. And so how could he respond, you know, to a circumcised, historically accurate statue of David, for example? Yeah. Uh, so things like that. Um, so the, Bible, the state and the, and, the, and the church authorities draw from the same language and use it slightly differently but it's one symbolic language, one vocabulary of symbol that are that is sort of universally understood. So that's one big thing. You have this divorce uh, between ch church and state, and they split up the kids. So the church keeps the Bible, but they give up paganism, and the state keeps paganism, but they give up the Bible. Um, and you get a couple little conflicts every once in a while, say in America, somebody gets really upset because there's a statue or a painting of Moses in an American courthouse or something like that. Have you ever heard these little news stories? Yes. And that's because Moses is, in, in the case of being in a courthouse, Mo Moses is among Hammurabi and Solon, the great lawgivers of ancient civilization. He's not a symbol of Christianity or the Jewish God. He's a symbol of a lawgiver to a society. So he's actually, that's one instance where the state kind of maintains a biblical figure. But in most cases, you see some great courthouse in Europe or in the New World, and it will have strictly um, classical mythological symbolism, for example. So I think that's a great loss um, to the church and to the state to kind of have to give up, to have to separate those two parts of our language. It's as if you took English and said, there's no more French derived words allowed in English, right? Your, your vocabulary would suddenly be yeah. half worthless. Uh, so I think that's an issue. Uh, and it's not like anybody signed a contract to make it happen, but it just happened within the culture during this period. And then finally, um, so we talked about the church losing focus on hiring the most prominent artists we talked about losing the kind of classical symbolic language in the West. And I'm curious to see how you think all this corresponds in the East. But the last one is, in my estimation, the Roman church started to feel queasy and embarrassed about its own grand mythological tradition during the period of the Enlightenment you start having English Protestants making fun of the papists and saying 
all the silly superstitious things they believe in. Um, and Catholics, I think, start to blush for the first time in their history. They say, okay, let's downplay the grand mythological structure of Christianity and let's start compressing it down to sort of the lovely moral precepts of Jesus Christ and the sort of social benefits of Catholicism. Now, this is what I mean. When was the last time or when was the last art historical period that you saw a painting of the Last Judgment in the West? When was the last time you saw a depiction of the resurrection of Christ or the resurrection of the dead on the last day? These are themes that we haven't used properly in 200 years. Do you think that's true? I think it is. Yes. Yeah. So where did I'm trying to think? I can't think of examples now to to counter that. Yeah, must be some pictures of you know Jesus standing around, and you get lots of Mary standing around, but you don't have these sort of epic Lord of the Rings style sort of thematic uh, images of Christianity, and um, it kind of has compressed itself down to a sort of very personal piety. We've had a lot of focus on personal piety, about praying the rosary by yourself in the dark, and not as much about sort of participating in the basic kind of mythological structure of all human history, which is this desire for your own immortality, right? Yes. See, I would say, I would talk about the... The, the the grand narrative in scripture and i think yeah. that that um there is the the story of all mankind portrayed through scripture and each of us um has a life which in some way participates that in, and in microcosm mirrors the uh, you can that. go through your life thinking symbolically about this i mean you can sort of Every and, and as you say, it, it just is, is not portrayed in the churches. We no. don't even think in this way. No. Uh, and we say it. I mean, we haven't totally thrown this out. We say it in the creed every Sunday. I believe yeah. in the resurrection of the body and in life everlasting. Amen. But we say it by rote it, yeah. among a hundred other people who don't really seem to believe it because we don't have this sort of visceral sense that your body will be somehow reconstituted and, uh, and i think that that's the, the way to reconstitute this this would be my idea is to once again make the art relevant to the, those moments in the liturgy especially so it's communal it's not personal in the, as you describe and then what happens is you're seeing something which connects with what you're saying but because it's an image in your mind and through the image our imaginations then take us up to the to the prototype, or should we say the truth that it portrays, it, it, it elevates us to heaven. We need that visual image as well as the word to, to concretize it in a, in a special way. Um, and we make a, a leap of, from an image to a reality in our imaginations. And that doesn't happen in the same way with words, actually. It, so yeah yeah um and, and so in the context of the the worship i i think that there needs to be a, a a really sort of deep down rethink about how we connect 
So if we have the Ghent altarpiece, for example, apparently it's not in the central position in the church. I haven't seen it um, in reality. But if people were um, at a mass where that was a reredos, I suspect that they wouldn't know really what they were looking at, why those things are in there, how to connect with it in the course of, of praying the Mass, of, of uh, participating in the Mass. Well, this is, yeah, this is what art offers the public, the community, that, you know, a textbook does not, right? So you can describe a book according to its reading level. Is this meant for a general audience, for a child, for a well-educated adult, or for a specialist? And you have to kind of gear whatever book you're writing towards that audience because you know that the specialist isn't going to read the children's book and the child isn't going to read the book for the specialist, right? So that's a real limitation to the textual tradition. Um, with a work of art, that limitation is completely eliminated. Yes. It is. If you think about Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, every human being on earth is completely awestruck on whatever level of appreciation yeah. they're currently going to live at. And this is, you know, one of the things, you know, obviously in the 20th century, there's been this sort of battle between whether something should be a, um, you know, a realistic depiction or should it be abstracted or should it be non-representational. One of the best arguments for representational art is that some people are simply on that purely one for one level of saying, here's a painting that looks like a thing, right? So that's what we were talking about before with Aristotle's poetics. The first thing he ever says is that all men are drawn to mimesis, and that's just imitation. And so I've had two kids, and I've always noticed with my kids, when do they start, there's a certain point where I can moo like a cow, and they get extremely excited. It's just the most marvelous magic trick that their dad can perform to kind of imitate a cow sound or a rooster. And that's that delight in mimetic activity that all humans are sort of born with. Um, and so there will be some part of your audience that merely responds to, you know, a portrait of a human that looks like a human. And they kind of are fascinated by that. And we've been fascinated by that since ancient times. But you can keep building layer upon layer. So you can have that sort of level of visual representation that's sort of stunning in some way, even from a very abstract version of it to a very precise version. Um, because it's good enough, you know, when you're looking for the men's room, the very simplified figure of the human is enough of a representation to get you where you're going. But it's not a work of art that you'll spend an hour contemplating, right? So we can have levels of, of visual representation as sort of the base stratum of this sort of art pyramid. And beyond that, you can have levels of narrative and you can have levels of philosophy, of theology, of emotion, of all of this range of things that can affect your audience. And there are things that, you know, the magic of art sometimes is even things that you never even intended then being interpreted by your viewer. Um, there's something... That's actually one of the reasons I set up this sculpture that um, I think your audience on YouTube can see behind me. Um, yeah. This was one of the models for the uh, work at Clear Creek Abbey. And 
I had to arrange all 12 apostles and I figured out, you know, how to position them. They're all in a row and they're all kind of holding their tools of their martyrdom and various symbols. And you're kind of, you fill the most important apostles up in the middle and then you get to the edges and you're like, who are these guys? Simon and Jude, who's ever heard of them? What did they do? <laughs> um, so I always knew that Simon and Jude were sort of a pair and you always see them. There's a traditional devotion to those apostles as a pair. And that's because they're buried in the same church essentially in Rome. Um, so I had Simon and Jude and James the less, and I figured, wouldn't it be clever if I put them in such a situation where you can see uh, Simon on the farthest to the, to the side and Jude on the other side and poor little James the less is stuck between these guys. <laughs> and he's trying to write his epistles, uh, but he's got these two loudmouths on either side of him. And I just thought it would be fun and kind of um, talk about it as a, as a kind of humanizing look at the apostles. And, um, just imagine kind of a dorm room in heaven where these guys are stuck together as roommates. Um, that's because that's the kind of person I am. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, but my little brother, who's a proper theologian and a you know, real scholar, came and he looked at this at a certain point when he was visiting the monastery. And he said, Andrew, this is so amazing. You, you've really captured something great here. And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, well, there's this part in the... Uh, the story of, of the Acts of the Apostles, where um, all the apostles are disputing some question, this deep theological question about whether Christians have to be circumcised or not. And they're all arguing and clamoring and making this dispute go forward. And James the Less is silent throughout the whole time. And finally, at the end, he opens his mouth and he speaks for a few sentences and everybody is won over to his position and on they go. Um, that's something I'd never even intended, but it's a correct interpretation in a sense, mm -hmm. right? You can have that kind of mysterious level of interpretation happening in a <laughs> where the viewer can actually add something to the thing that was never intended by the artist. And I just think that's amazing. Um, it is. Um, I, I would love to go on. We've been... I think we will draw it to a close there, though. Um, sure. Andrew, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Why don't you just give us again uh, the, the places where people can contact you, and especially those that are, uh, whose interest is piqued and would like to commission a sculpture. I always want to encourage that. So mm -hmm. give us the, the websites or any other contact points that you, you want people to know about. Yeah, really the easiest point is um, fourcrowns.org, and that's all spelled out, the number four and crowns. Um, and there you can learn a little bit about the Atelier program, the kind of way of just sort of getting in touch and potentially working um, as a student apprentice. Or again, you can see the full catalog of my work and um, you can also, yeah, certainly contact me through that. Right. Means. So that's F-O-U-R-C-R-O-W-N-S, fourcrowns.org. That's right. All right. Andrew Wilson-Smith, thank you very much indeed. Well, David, it was a great pleasure. Thank you. God bless you. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.